When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, psychologist Susan Pinker tells us why face-to-face contact matters in The Village Effect... And then Gary Wilson describes your brain on porn. Susan Pinker is a developmental psychologist and an award-winning newspaper columnist who writes about psychology and social science in the Globe and Mail. She has worked as a clinical psychologist for 25 years and has taught at McGill University in Montreal. Known for her progressive and thought-provoking work, her previous book, The Sexual Paradox, took an unflinching look at the gender gap. Her latest book is The Village Effect, Why Face-to-Face Contact Matters. And I'm joined face-to-face by Susan now to talk about the book. So Susan, thank you very much for being on his Latins, first of all. And thank you for inviting me. Let's start this off in a different direction. We've always been social animals, human beings. Presumably that's how we managed to get off the savannah and start civilization by being in groups. But when did we first begin to notice that there was like a problem, almost an epidemic with loneliness. When, when have we decided that that's, that's an issue? Well, about a generation ago, they noticed in the United States as well as in Europe that our close social circle was declining, so the number of people we could depend on was reducing significantly. Mm-hmm. So this was happening at the same time as the explosion of the Internet. So, of course, one doesn't necessarily cause the other, I think there are many factors involved Mm -hmm. with our increasing loneliness. But we do know, for example, that we used to have a group of about three or more people on average that we could depend on in times of trouble or stress that you could confide in. And now that number is on average about two or fewer. And certainly in the UK, there are similar figures. What's really interesting about the UK is that the age at which people are loneliest looks different than it does in North America. And so the loneliest groups in the UK, it's what we call a U-shaped function, so early adulthood. So you wouldn't expect people in their late teens and early 20s to be intensely lonely, but Mm -hmm. that is what the scientists are finding. And then loneliness dips down during midlife in the UK, not at all the picture in North America, and pops back up around age 60, 65. I think probably around the time that people are thinking of retiring and losing their work-related networks, or Mm -hmm. perhaps their adult children are leaving home at that time. And so I think that existential aloneness has always been an issue for the human species. (laughs) But 
I think it hasn't been until now that we can just get along with our daily business without having to interact with anybody. We can go to school, we can go to work, we can buy what we need, and mm-hmm. we never actually have to talk to another person. And it's having an impact, I think, not only on our health, but it's having an impact, too, on our ability to understand people who are different than us. Mm-hmm. So I think it's having an impact on the political sphere in that, of course, on the internet, the internet has ways of devising what you see, what gets presented to you, so that you only see articles that you might like to read, and you, or you only see advertisements of products that maybe you've Googled before. So your world paradoxically is getting narrower there, and socially as well, because now we choose who we want to interact with. I want to talk about the the modern context, the internet, social media and networking in more detail later on. But let's... Well, something you just said there, just in very general terms, this idea that society-wise there's there's a difference in the time when people are lonely between the US and the UK. That's What accounts for that? That's that's an interesting idea. It is, and, and I'm not sure I can explain it, because I, I just learned about it recently, mm-hmm. because I was looking at the loneliness statistics, and... I find it fascinating, but one of the areas where the two countries converge is that it's not what people expect. There's a taboo about loneliness. Mm -hmm. We don't like to talk about it. We think it's always about somebody else. So often we slough off the idea and say, oh, it's those senior citizens, they're sitting alone on a park bench Mm -hmm. and feeding the pigeons, and of course they're lonely. And, you know, their children are not involved in their lives. Nobody calls their mother often enough. And we don't have to think about that because it's not us. But actually, the science is telling us something completely different. It is us. So it's either people when they're young and starting their careers. In the United States, it's the middle-aged. And, of course, the age of 60 is no longer the advanced old age that it used to be. Mm -hmm. So people still have a good 25 years, sometimes more, ahead of them. And so if they don't address and solve this, that could be a very distressing notion. I mean, this is obviously something that's common to all Western, for want of a better word, societies. But to single one out, you talk particularly about Japan as somewhere where this is almost pathologised. There was a quarter of a million people, elderly people, that just disappeared from the registers and, and were forgotten about and ignored. This is an amazing, it's an amazing story. And... I will say about Japan, I mean, I brought that up in the village effect as a way of saying, you know, we've all been in love with the notion of longevity and there have been countries that have long touted themselves as being very good at keeping people alive for unbelievable periods of time. Mm -hmm. The Caucasus and, and Japan is another one. And a lot of it is just plainly not true. And so you have to be very careful about some of these unbelievable stories and in particular Mm -hmm. with Japan, but What's interesting about Japan is I'm not surprised that they are the nation that is also at the forefront of developing robots, they say, to look after the physical and psychological needs of the elderly. Mm -hmm. And I don't really talk about this in the village effect so much, but once again, it's the notion that, okay, it's fine for a robot to wash an 80-year-old's hair, but as for me, I go to the salon and I get a massage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
And a conversation. And a conversation. And it's part of the experience. Mm-hmm. And so if you go to a salon today, they offer you a cup of tea or coffee, they interact with you, they massage your head. It's a whole social experience, mm-hmm. right? And it's always been that way. But those other people, oh, those are the people who are needy and lonely. We're, we're not going to actually think too carefully about that when actually those people are us. So in a way, one of the, I guess, messages of the book is it's not necessarily about living an extremely long life, but of the quality of life that you want to live. And again, later in the, in the interview, we'll come back in a slightly different context and perhaps we'll, listeners will, will hear why a robot might not be a... a, a suitable substitute for a real human being if you were conversing with it but um longevity yeah tell us about the uh, the sardinians there's in the book there's a there's a episode where you, you you spend some time in sardinia in some hill villages where they're um unusually even more than you just described about some other places japan the cooks there's unusually long-lived why is that well, I'll go a little bit further back to say why I went there mm-hmm. in the first place um, is because at the end of my last book, which is about sex differences, I was left with a puzzle, which is why women in all developed nations live longer lives than men do. Mm-hmm. So there's a quite significant lifespan gap. And at the end of my last book, the evidence was mounting, even at that time, which was 2008, that the fact that women on average are more social and tend to reach out to other people and build and maintain their social networks throughout their lifespans has turned out to have protective effects. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started with this. I didn't really understand the why. I just knew that it was there. So that, for example, people who were more social, who were getting on in life, tended to keep their memories longer. Those people tended to be women. Why was that? What's the connection between getting out there and playing bingo or cards or having coffee a couple of times a week with your friends or going to church and so on. The connection of being in a social environment and hanging on to your marbles longer or living longer. And then I heard this fact at a conference that there is one place where men do live as long as women or nearly, and that's this remote part of Sardinia. So that's when I sat up in my seat and I thought, what's going on there? I'd like to go and tell that story. And so that's the genesis of the idea. And it really allowed me to to talk about the science as a story. Mm -hmm. Because in the book, it's really a series of stories about people who I either know or who I came to know through the book. And how their lives in particular illustrate the latest science and the latest social neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So if they were dealing with a very demanding, challenging, and I would say discouraging disease like cancer, how is it that they use their social networks? And I don't want to use exploited because that has a negative connotation, but how did their social lives provide the kind of support that they needed to get through that period in their lives? Because there are different kinds of effects, both the physical effect of somebody taking you to the hospital or bringing you soup or helping you to your appointments, but also the psychological effect of just having somebody to keep you company and be Mm -hmm. near you and care about you when you're going through a difficult patch. Getting back to Sardinia, I went there with my adult daughter who had just graduated university, and she had just done, as it happens, 
an internship at the CBC, a fellowship at the CBC, which is like the BBC, yeah. but only in Canada. So she had good broadcasting skills mm-hmm. like and good technical skills and was at a bit loose ends. And I had planned this research trip and I said, come along with me and we'll have this adventure and you'll handle the Marantz, which I really don't know how to use, and we'll find out what the story is. When we arrived, we were almost immediately bowled over by two phenomena that were unexpected. The first was that the scientific community, the local scientific community who had documented this phenomenon of longevity, immediately embraced us. I mean, the first night, they took us to dinner, they brought their wives, their graduate students, their girlfriends. It was like a big family affair. And it lowered any kind of distrust they would have had in us and vice versa. We were suddenly a group. That was a very new feeling for me, that a scientific community would do that. So suddenly it, it dawned on me, there's something about this culture that's quite different. The science, science is science everywhere. But, for example, we were going to go to the blue zone where people not only live, you know, 10 times as many people live past the age of 100 than they do in England or Canada or America. But, I mean, six times as many centenarians as there are just 120 miles away on mm-hmm. the Italian mainland. So it wasn't just about their Mediterranean diet, I knew that. So after this lovely dinner, they said, you know, well, we're all coming with you tomorrow to the Blue Zone because we can't let these Canadian strangers make the journey all by themselves. We have to help you along a little. So these were the beginning clues that I was encountering a culture that was very inclusive and where they found the social interaction very important part of their daily routine. It's part of doing science. It's part of having meals. And as I soon discovered, it's part of aging. Mm -hmm. So when we got there, the uh, scientists helped set us up with interviews with centenarians, and super centenarians, meaning people who are well past 100. Everywhere we went to encounter these older folks, we encountered usually a kitchen full of people. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily immediately, but of course we were three people to begin with because it was me and my daughter and my interpreter. Right, And then we'd arrive and there would be three people sitting in the kitchen, so automatically we were six. Mm-hmm. And then a couple more would drop by. And there was kind of an organic to and fro of social contacts all morning or all afternoon, which made for horrible audio because people were laughing and interrupting each other and it was like recording a party. And it dawned on us, this is the story. They are not left alone, unlike... In North America, whereas you have to learn to be solitary from an early age, and mm-hmm. that is valued to be an independent actor, not to depend on anybody, not to ask people for help. This is hugely revered. This is a tremendous value, whereas there, the interdependence is considered to be normal. So when I said to, for example, one of the centenarians who was actually quite a grouchy fellow, irascible, not pleasant at all, but interesting. And he lived with his niece. And I said, you know, you can't really leave the house because you can't leave Zio alone. (laughs) She said, yes, so. So I said, don't you find that annoying or frustrating? Don't you want to get out and see your friends or go to the cafe or have your freedom? And she said, no, why? (laughs) I said, well, because I would. And she said, you just don't get it. You Americans just don't get it, do you? Mm-hmm. She, this is a huge privilege for us. This is our, the elders are our heritage. 
They're hugely respected. We surround them with love and TLC because they're important to us, not because it's just an obligation. Mm-hmm. And it was true. You know, I turned to her niece, so it's the grandniece of the center, and I said to her, and she had laptop on her lap, sunglasses in one hand, cell phone in the other hand, around mid-twenties. I said, what about you? Are you going to look after your mother or father when they're 80, 90, 100? And this mm-hmm. she said, you know, certo, everybody does it. It's, this is what you do here. So that, for me, was a very important piece of the puzzle. It doesn't tell the whole story, mm-hmm. but it does tell a piece of the story that's very different from what is done, say, even on the Italian mainland. I'm Michael Brooks, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. It's obviously a, you know, it's a very old-fashioned way of living. As you said, there's not many people in North America and, and the UK who would you know, happily consent to give up lives they have made for themselves to end up looking after elderly parents. So let's look at the other side of it, because you also look at, in the book at ways in which, well, for want of a better word, face-to-face contact, having a, having a tight-knit group of people can be bad for us as well, but can also make us ill. For instance... Being overweight can be contagious. <laughs> right. So the point I'm making in the book is not that it's always a force for good. Mm-hmm. It's that, on the contrary, it's not something to be ignored. It's hugely powerful. So when we're with other people, we can catch their moods and their behavior, whether it's how much they're eating or whether they're happy or unhappy or whether they have tics or stutters I mean, all of us have had the experience of listening to somebody we know well talking on the phone and knowing, oh yes, they're talking to Aunt Sheila Mm -hmm. because they've picked up on the cadence of their voice. That's contagious, Mm -hmm. right? The theme is not, this is a wonderful thing that we all must do. This is not a book like, everybody must take up yoga, (laughs) or everybody must practice this so-called new idea. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of, this is hugely different than online contact, even than other forms of communication, and there are many. And for evolutionary reasons, it affects our behavior, it affects our thinking. We can have, we can be hoodwinked by other people in person. So it's for good and for ill. And that if we underestimate social contact, I think that we will be missing a whole chunk of important information that explains our behavior. You mentioned this idea that having a a face-to-face network of people, a big group of friends, can help us, in some cases, to deal with and overcome chronic illnesses. There's, I mean, a a statement in the book that seems, on the face of it, just unbelievable, this idea that a group of friends, or I guess not being lonely, not being alone and dealing with that, is more beneficial for you than, say, having a healthy diet or giving up smoking or a a list of things that, on the face of it, look like things that are bad for you. Having a group of friends is healthier. Isn't it amazing? It's it's amazing. (laughs) So here's, here's the paradox, is that on the one hand, it seems like an old fashioned idea. But on the other hand, the evidence that is emerging, and often they're from enormous population studies that follow huge groups of people into the future. Mm-hmm. And so they'll take what is essentially like 
a village, say 300, 400, 500,000 people, measure everything about their lifestyle, and then just sit tight and watch and see who dies first. Mm. Okay, and then they draw the line between the most predictive factors using statistical means. And so it is true that it is more predictive of how long you will live, say over a 10-year span or a 7-year span, your social network is more predictive than even something like whether you're obese or how much you exercise mm-hmm. or how, whether you've given up smoking. So it's a hugely powerful effect, and that is new evidence. So, and there's even very brand new evidence that just, I mean, it's not in the book because it just came out. So it came out, I think, last month, so 2015 publication date, which tells us that essentially it's not just whether you feel lonely. We used to think that it's all about the subjective, the subjective approach. Like, if you're solitary but you're comfortable with that, then it won't have negative effects. Mm-hmm. But this new research, which is on an enormous sample, tells us that actually there's no difference in the mortality statistics between people who say they're lonely and people who don't. What matters is the amount of social contact. So let's say something as objective as whether you live alone or not. If you live alone, you will have a reduced lifespan. There will be a 32% difference in your lifespan compared to people who live with other people. Mm -hmm. It's not how you feel about it. It's just as you move through your day, those people are there. And you bump up against them at mealtimes or you chat with them, and that's protective. So that's a completely new way of looking at it than how we looked at it before. And that, for me, is quite new. And so I will agree with you and say I was sometimes shocked at the evidence. And I thought, why aren't people talking about it? Throughout the book, I mean, you mentioned the idea from the the sexual paradox about longevity. Women live longer than men. That's throughout the world. You know, that's a constant around the world, generally. Throughout this book, there are occasions where rather this stuff affects women, not men, um, or affects women a lot more. And that may well be the sort of health benefits, or it may even be, you know, the contact between a, a mother and a child as opposed to a father and a child. What can I do? How can I get some of this, some of these benefits to rub off on me? That's a great question. You know, I think that one of the differences between men and women that's significant here is that they have kind of more developed oxytocin pathways that has to do with, frankly, giving birth to and nursing and rearing children. And so for evolutionary reasons, it was very important for a mother and child to be able to bond, Mm -hmm. and oxytocin helps them do that. It helps mothers sit still so they can nurse their infants. It helps them read the emotions in their infants before they're verbal. So it's as if the infrastructure is a little bit more developed. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't affect men too. And so, for example, I write about how marriage is extremely important for good health and happiness and avoiding chronic illnesses, but affects men and women completely differently. So men who are married, you know, they're 250 times more likely to live a long life if you're male and married than if you're single or divorced. That's a huge statistic. Women are better off if they're married, but only if it's a good marriage. If it's a bad marriage or full of conflict, they're actually at a disadvantage. And that's interesting to me because they tend to be more deeply affected by the quality of their relationships. 
So that's a kind of interesting difference. You keep saying married there, but I mean, do you just mean in a long-term relationship or is there something significant about marriage? There is something significant about marriage and that's another surprise that Mm -hmm. I came upon in my research because, you know, I come from a place where marriage has fallen into disrepute Mm -hmm. and so a lot of people just live together. But it turns out there are differences between a long-term relationship and being married that have to do with, I think, because I don't know for sure, but I think it has to do with the level of commitment and knowing that somebody always has your back and that they just can't get up that easily and walk out. I mean, Mm -hmm. they can, but it will be much more complicated. And there hasn't been a declaration to the community, which marriage is, essentially, saying, hello, everyone, pay attention, we are now a couple. That's what marriage is. But getting to your question, which I think is a supremely interesting question, if if I'm male, well, what can I do? Yeah, how can I get some of this? Yeah, I see that question as, you know, I'm not really a gifted athlete, but I see that people who are active in sports enjoy certain benefits. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ape what they do and hope that I get some of that. And a lot of people do that. Very few of us are Olympic athletes, but a whole raft of us go to the gym a lot. And we do what we can, and we find that whatever we do helps us a little bit. But I think for men, they can see, wow, women are doing this and the science says that it's helped them to live longer. Maybe if I try a bit of that, that's going to be beneficial for me. It might boost my mood. It might make me healthier, I mean, even more than treating my hypertension. And I'm not saying here that you should use your relationships for your own benefit. I think it's more a question of, this is a good thing. It makes people feel good. It helps them through life. It preserves them in many ways. So maybe I should put some of my energy in that direction. So, for example, we are all familiar with the stereotype of the workaholic, who's often and usually male. So somebody like that might have to pay attention and say, well, if I want to live, not have a heart attack at age 55 or 60, well, one of the things I could do is, yes, get exercise and eat less animal fat, but actually this too is important. What about just the benefit of having a group of friends though? Men tend to have a different pattern of relationships in their friendships. Women have a much more, on the whole, I mean it's a generalisation obviously, but women have supportive groups of friends that they talk about emotional stuff with and the cliche is that men don't do that. They might have some close friends but the way that they maintain those relationships is different. What can we learn from that? I think it's equally valuable the way men socialize. So often men socialize around an activity. So it might be, you know, they play darts once a week and then everybody goes, has a beer together. Or in in Canada, they play hockey. I mean, even older men play hockey. They have leagues. And then they all go out together and say, my husband, he has a film club with other men. So they all see a film every second Tuesday and then they go out for dinner It hardly matters what you do. So I don't actually think that there's that much of a qualitative difference. I don't think you have to have a deep, soul-revealing chat. I think just being near each other and having that group is beneficial. And what we are learning, though, I think it's changing gradually, but a lot of men don't have that, and they depend on their wives to create it. So Mm -hmm. the wives are the ones who invite people over for dinner. The wives are the ones who decide what who's going to eat and what they're going to eat. The wives send out the holiday cards. The wives make the holiday meals. In general, 
many men depend on their girlfriend or their wives for that social network. And if for some reason they lose that person, they lose their whole social network. Mm-hmm. And, and I discuss this in The Village Effect in terms of what's called the widowhood effect, where often men whose wives die, die soon after, within mm-hmm. six months to a year, especially the upper classes, interestingly enough. And part of that is they've not only lost their life mate, They've lost everyone mm-hmm. at one fell swoop. The whole connection to that network. Everything is gone. Mm-hmm. So I make the point that in the book that our close contacts are reducing, but especially for many men, often the only person they're close to is their wife or their girlfriend. And it never occurs to them, what happens if that one person is gone? Who is there for me? And they have to, I would say, think about that and build those relationships and sustain them and it doesn't really matter if they're having eyeball to eyeball deep discussions I don't think that's important to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Susan Pinker. We're talking about her book, The Village Effect, Why Face-to-Face Contact Matters. And Susan, there's a, there's a way now in the modern world in which we're all super connected to each other. Everybody's got hundreds and hundreds of friends on Facebook or on Twitter or what have you. So why is this not the same? Does this not have the same effect as having real-world friends? When you are with somebody in person, there's a whole cascade of events that occur. And some of them are the result of just making eye contact. I mean, even on Skype or FaceTime, it's not true eye contact. Some of it is the effect of a little touch or a pat or a high five or a handshake. All of those release neurochemicals Mm -hmm. and hormones that have an effect on our emotional state and our cognition, too. They help us feel good in the here and now. They are, some of them act as painkillers. Some of them act on the coatings around our genes and affect how our genes express themselves. Mm -hmm. And this would affect your immunity to even things like the common cold. It would affect how well you recover from a chronic or traumatic disease like a stroke or heart disease or even cancer. So it's not like it's a miracle. It's just that we've evolved as a social species, Mm -hmm. and when we get together and connect, it creates a biochemical reaction that makes us want to do it again. And it makes us trust each other, and it bonds the group together. That's on one level. On the other level, there's a whole series of what scientists call honest signals that are communicated in person that just don't get transmitted in more mediated, technologically mediated forms, which are good for many other things. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trashing it. They're good for a whole range of types of communications. But one thing is that they don't allow for synchrony of communications. So, for example... While we're talking to each other now, you know, I might use my hands and then you might use your hands, or I might put my 
chin on my fist, and you might do the same. And we're, a lot of these signals fly under the, our radar. Mirroring, basically. Mirroring the, yeah. the synchrony and how much we influence each other as we talk to each other, mm-hmm. that maybe our voices will start to match in terms of the rhythm of our speech. And all of these signals, which are called honest signals, so eye contact, the mirroring or synchrony, the influence, how much, for example, the volume of my voice affects yours, all of these are tremendously predictive of some things that are very important to us as a society, Mm -hmm. such as how well our negotiations go, how much a surfer will get tipped in a restaurant, whether two people will connect romantically. And they're missing in more stripped-down forms of communication. Mm -hmm. So they're especially missing in texts. I think one level up from text might be email because we have a little bit more space. But even that is not as good as hearing somebody's voice on the telephone. And even that is not as good as seeing somebody in person because the richness of the experience gives us a broader, if I could use the same term, a broader band of uh, signals Mm -hmm. that can help us understand what is this person feeling right now? What are they thinking right now? What are they likely to do next? And without some of these signals, it's very hard for us to know. That's why, for example, people get into trouble with email. And these signals can often be... I mean, we don't know that we're noticing them most of the time, I think. And you talk in the book about... Well, I think it's quite a classic, perhaps even notorious experiment. The lap dancing club experiment, where the, the, the guy sees how much lap dancers are basically getting tipped, depending on what whether they're ovulating or menstruating, basically. Tell us about that experiment. Yeah, I mean, believe it or not, it was news to me. The experiment was quite simple, and it was quite ingenious, actually, in that the scientist went to a strip club and essentially had the lap dancers there monitor the days of their cycle, as well as the amount they collected in tips day to day. And he simply matched where they were in their cycle against the amount of tips they were earning. Mm -hmm. And everything else was the same. They were dressed the same way, their dances didn't change, but essentially when they were ovulating, the men somehow picked up on it, probably were not aware of it, and gave them bigger tips, and even probably chose the dancers who were ovulating more often, so they earned more. Which, to me, I presented this in the book to say that we're not always aware of the in-person signals we're giving off. Certainly the lap dancers were not aware that this was happening until it was pointed out to them. So a lot of this is invisible to us, and that's one reason why we underrate it. We've been talking about the internet, and you know, a lot of that interaction now is through screens, through tablets, through our mobile phones. So we're even more connected to the internet all the time than we were even you know, 10 years ago when people first really started using the internet. And we've talked about how that form of contact is not necessarily the same as face-to-face contact. But I want to relate that in terms of learning, child development, basically. So there's a difference between... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Reading to a child, a child having face-to-face contact in that context with his parents, to simply sticking a child in front of the television and playing language to it basically and sitting in front of a television and listening to people talk is not the same as being read to by another human being not at all and that's really interesting because using a screen is essentially the path of least resistance and parents are very busy and they have a lot of demands on them i would say the demands are ramping up exponentially especially with our devices because it's not as if they can leave work at work and come home and tend to their children 100 mm-hmm. percent or even their own needs and desires. I and mean, their attention is always split. And in parallel with that, they've had their hoodwinked into thinking, well, I have to use these devices for work and to communicate with my family and friends, so therefore it's a good thing for my child too. And that's not at all the case. We have no evidence of this. There's no app that's been invented that has been shown to be educational that has had an impact on learning or on school achievement. It does not exist yet. It doesn't mean that it won't be invented, but I would say certainly for young children, their brains have evolved to connect socially with another person. There is no child yet who's learned to speak from a television. The reason they learn to talk is to communicate something, to make a connection with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's been with a small child who starts to name and point and name, they're not just naming it, They want to tell you that they know the name of that thing. Mm -hmm. And they want you to respond to that fact. So it's quite alarming to me that the amount of time that children, especially young children, are spending with screens, and especially in the classroom, because I feel that the resources are being shifted that way with no evidence to prove that it's in children's Mm -hmm. interests. And we're kind of blurring the lines between adult and child. There's a, a great illustration of that, and I think, actually, it's probably from Steve, your brother's book, about the deaf parents being you know, told in the past to leave the telly on and put the children, if they have children, put them in front of the television. And they don't. As you just said, they just simply don't learn to talk by that means. No, they don't. And there's some study done by Patricia Cool, some studies done by Patricia Cool, who's at University of Washington, where essentially she plays tape-recorded text to small children, toddlers, and 
in another language. And then she has them exposed to somebody who's really talking to them. And their learning is not at all the same. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the new neurological studies that are emerging now, the fMRI studies show that different parts of the brain are activated when you have an interactive, dynamic conversation versus when the information is presented to you in a static form. So I think it's tremendously important, I think, from an ethical point of view, that people who are in the position of making decisions, policymakers, educators, people in government, pay attention to this because... In the classroom, certainly, screens are infiltrating every aspect of education. I'm Selina Godden. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We talked about this idea of connection on social media and having lots and lots of Facebook friends and you know lots and lots of, sort of virtual friends online. Um, it's not the same as having friends in real life. Somebody that has a generally a huge network of, of friends in real life, or you know certainly colleagues, perhaps being the wrong word, fellow pupils, is school children, schoolgirls. I'm trying to get to the the schoolgirls with their thousands and thousands of texts a day, right. which just seems absolutely inconceivable to me. Um, and it seems that the ones that are more connected, the ones that have the most connections, the ones that are sending the most message, they're therefore in touch with their friends constantly, but in a sort of virtual, electronic way, are unhappier. It's a paradox, isn't it? And I think it derives from the fact that it's easier to communicate negative things online and not have to imagine how they're going to affect the other person. Mm -hmm. I think that's one aspect. So there's a lot of nastiness that happens online that wouldn't happen to -to face-to-face because you just simply wouldn't get away with it. Plus, you'd have to deal with the reaction of the other person. It's not that bullying is anything new. Bullying mm-hmm. has always happened. But, you know, if you call somebody a name or you try to destroy their reputation in the schoolyard, you know, you might get hit or you might get disciplined. But now this all happens anonymously online and the effects can be very serious. Mm-hmm. In fact, they can be fatal because teenage girls in particular, some teenage boys, but teenage girls are in particular are sensitive to criticism and sometimes they just can't stop it. But there's another aspect of that is that the persona that we present online is not a true representation of who we are. It's very carefully crafted. It's more like advertising. I call it a social la-la land. Mm -hmm. And so you control Facebook day after day, and the people whom you really know and whose life stories you really know, their disappointments and frustrations never appear there. What appears there is their holiday pictures or the fact that they won an award or their child won an award. Or it's really like a scrapbook of achievements that people crow about for the Mm -hmm. most part. Partly that and partly anonymous trolls who could be your friends, Mm so-called friends. And so this is very damaging. And in a way that I think in face-to-face networks, it was better to get a handle on it. I was going to widen it out into the, the idea of just, you know, the internet troll people on social media. And that really has... I mean, it's, it's an enormous problem at the moment. Just last week, the writer John Ronson was on the show talking about his book about public shaming and that. We have not yet figured out how to communicate in those means, have we? It's absolutely, as you've just described, you know, we're not talking to a real person. We don't, we sort of lose that idea that there is a real person on the other end and therefore feel we can say exactly what we want online. And that's, 
Do you think that's sort of inherent to the media, or is it just that we've not learned the etiquette of it yet? I think it's more than etiquette. I think that there's a notion when it comes to the internet that a all information should be free. Nobody should be monitored. There shouldn't be any rules. But actually, we're governed by a lot of social rules in civil society. We have laws. We can't just go up to a stranger on the street and take something that belongs to them, or hit them, or mm-hmm. call them a name. There are ways that, in civil society, your behavior has to conform, or you'll be rejected. Mm-hmm. And though we haven't imposed those rules on the internet yet, and because of that, I think it's quite chaotic. I think it's more like probably medieval society was in that people, the strongest men with the strongest biggest weapon could steal the most and kill the most mm-hmm. and, and essentially be the biggest guy on the block. And we've come a long way from there, but the internet hasn't, I think. In my view, we haven't developed the way to have civil relationships there, the way we have offline. Let's stay with that guy, that, that medieval <laughs> warlord guy yeah. for the moment, because actually I want to talk about the way in which, before we finish, about how... Face-to-face social networks can be exploited as well by that sort of person. You talk about um, con men, financial crime, pyramid schemes, things like that. These are all things that exploit face-to-face contact, trust between people, aren't they? Exactly. And I present these stories for two reasons. One is they're unbelievable, some of them. Like the guy who essentially stole millions from Hezbollah. He pulled the wool over their eyes completely, just like in every ethnic group there is a con man. And the reason I present these stories is to say, ignore the science about social interaction at your peril. If you don't understand how this works, you can be hoodwinked. Mm -hmm. So it's different online where people are anonymous, but if you don't understand how facial features can sway you, how you can, your eating habits can be influenced, how your health can be influenced. You're missing a whole slice of science that governs your behavior. And I find it, in a way, unbelievable that people don't want to know more about this. Related to that, I mean, as a final, just my last final question, I think people listening to this interview and perhaps reading the book could take from it, and I don't think this is the argument you're making at all, but... They could take from it quite a conservative argument. You know, we'd be better off living in a, in a Sardinian village looking after elderly parents than living a advanced capitalist life of individuality. And, and as I said, that's not the argument that you're making. But I don't think, you know, we, we are not going to suddenly start taking care of uh, <laughs> centennial parents or anything in, in any hurry soon. So what can we do? Let's talk about what things, what simple things can we do to try and bring a bit of the village effect into our lives for our benefit. You're quite right. The message is not everybody trash their cell phones and go move to a Sardinian village and start working at agriculture. That's not the message. Good. I'm not doing that. No, me neither. But the message is, if I can make the analogy to the food movement... Right now, there's a resurgence in interest in whole foods, in organic foods, in the slow food movement, in slow cooking, in authentic foods. And you could make the same argument that, you know, okay, everybody, stop eating McDonald's. You can only eat kale and, and nuts for, and, and quinoa for the rest of your life. Most people are not as extreme as that, but are still incorporating the message of 
yeah, I, I probably should eat more unprocessed food because the science says it's good for me. And similarly, I'm not advocating that people give up their technology and that would be foolish because the technology brings us all sorts of benefits. But on the other hand, there are trade-offs mm -hmm. and we have to recognize the trade-offs. So the trade-offs are that if you communicate increasingly online and you stop interacting as much as you did before, there will be effects on your memory, there will be effects on your health, there will be effects on your sense of well-being. Mm -hmm. And you can probably sense it if you're more conscious about it. So that's more the message. It's more, very few parents now would take candy bars, mash them up and present them to their babies three times a day. But that's what they're doing with screen entertainment. Mm -hmm. I think a candy bar now and then is perfectly fine for even a small child. Very few of us would do what we did in the 50s, which is open our car window and throw trash out and spoil the environment that way. Most of us now recycle. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we've stopped driving cars. There are kind of ways that we can combine new emerging science with our lifestyle without really transforming it radically, but still having an impact. So how can we incorporate the village effect without... You can build a village wherever you live. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think a lot of cities are better for having that metaphorical village than living in a suburb or an exit where you have to drive everywhere. Mm -hmm. So if you live in a city and you always shop at the same place to strike up a conversation with the person who's behind the counter, make a, a point of living in a place where people talk to each other, where there are sidewalks, don't just look at how many parking spaces you have or closets you have. You know, at work, make a point of really talking to your coworkers if you're lucky enough to work in a social workplace mm -hmm. instead of just shooting emails back and forth all day. Make investments in your relationships because one of the shocking bits of information I discovered was that if you don't see people face-to-face, -face, your relationships decay. So you can have all the Facebook friends you want, but if you don't see somebody, I'm not talking about family, but mm -hmm. friends, within, say, two to five years, they're gone from your network. And you should replace that person with somebody else or groom that relationship with real contact. Mm -hmm. So there are kind of little ways you can tweak your existing lifestyle that are not actually that dramatic. I've been talking to Susan Pinker. We've been talking about her book, The Village Effect, Why Face-to-Face -face Contact Matters. It's out now from Atlantic Books. So Susan, thank you so much for telling me about it. Thank you. Jeff Dyer, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Gary Wilson is the presenter of the popular TEDx talk, The Great Porn Experiment, and hosts the website yourbrainonporn.com, which was created for those seeking to understand and reverse compulsive porn use. He taught anatomy and physiology for years and has long been interested in the neurochemistry of addiction, mating and bonding. So, Gary, we're going to be talking about your book, Your Brain on Porn, Internet Pornography and the Emerging Science of Addiction. So, welcome to Little Atoms. Hey, it's great to be here. 
I just gave a little description of yourself there, but you're you're not a neuroscientist as such. So where did your interest, where did you first think there was something in this idea that pornography might be having an effect on our brains? Well, in teaching physiology and pathology for many years, of course, I taught the nervous system several times a year and the pathology of it. So I had that background. But uh, what occurred about 15 years ago is I got together with my wife and we started to write articles and eventually some books about the neurobiology of bonding, of orgasm, of sex. And she had a website and eventually she created a forum. And then these guys putting these words together that were in these articles started to show up and complain about porn addiction and porn-induced sexual problems. And she's saying, like, what are you doing here? Get out of here. But they stayed, and Google put together their posts, and more and more showed up over the next several years. And what was occurring was amazing is because these guys were giving up porn primarily because they had erectile dysfunction or delayed ejaculation. And they were also experiencing other benefits, such as less depression, less social anxiety, more energy. And so since there was a a gap between what was starting to occur because of internet porn and what these guys were experiencing, she was blogging on uh, Psychology Today and started writing some articles about it. More guys showed up and just completely flooded her website. And she said, can you create a website just for them with material? And so I created Your Brain on Porn in 2010. So that's the short story. It's a controversial subject, obviously. So I think we'd need to set in stone from the beginning. This book is not, it's not anti-porn, right? No, no. First of all, I'm not religious. I'm very liberal. I don't want to ban porn. I really never really want to have anything to do with this. And so, no, it's not anti-porn. It's sort of an information. It's a clearinghouse. It's showing that a new supernormal stimulus, which is high-speed internet porn, is having negative effects that really didn't occur back when we had magazines. So that's what it's really about. So, I mean, you've mentioned your own experience and your wife setting up this forum and, and beginning to sort of understand what was going on. But let's widen that out a bit and talk about when, I guess, the you know, the wider neurological community first started to notice something. Well, that's just recent. It really depends on how you look at things. If you look at it in terms of addiction itself, addiction is just extremely well studied because it can be modeled in all sorts of animals. So they've looked at certainly all different types of drug addictions and down to the molecular levels, epigenetic levels of changes. But then they started to look at behavioral addictions, especially food addiction in animal models, and they found the same brain changes. And then, of course, they started to get their fMRIs and their EEGs and all these brain scanning materials. And they started to find that pathological gambling involves many of the same brain changes as drug addictions and then food addiction. And now there's about 100 Internet addiction brain studies that have been put out in the last four or five years. And they show the same brain changes that occur with drug addiction. So. The bottom line is the behavioral addiction studies have really shown us that addiction, whether it's drugs or whether it's behaviors, have shared fundamental mechanisms and shared fundamental brain changes that lead to a set of behaviors and signs and symptoms. So that's where the science is. I mean, you just said that internet addiction. What is it about online pornography that's particular in this instance? I mean, what about could the person not be 
addicted to you know watching too many cat videos on youtube or something <laughs> yeah so how would uh, internet porn differ well first of all the internet is just fascinating to the reward centers because of dopamine and dopamine rises for such things as sex and food and achievement but it also rises for novelty and of course what's going on in the internet is endless novelty but it also jumps up for violation of expectations when things are better or more than expected or different than expected. And it also jumps up for shock, for surprise, and even anxiety. So internet porn combines our highest natural reward, our highest level of dopamine, and that's sex. Then you have the male brain, which is particularly attracted to sexual novelty. And then you can sit and click from video to video to video, and you can shock yourself, you can surprise yourself, you can violate your expectations like, oh my God, what the hell is that? And you can keep dopamine elevated throughout an entire masturbation session for hours on end. So it's a unique stimulus. I just wanted to pick up on a couple of times you've mentioned men and what happens to men. And as we do more and more research into pornography use, it emerges that women are using it to an extent that is in some respects surprising. So is this addiction something that affects men more than women? I would say it does. Uh, there was, you know, they don't do really surveys asking men if they're addicted. Though so there was one survey last year, and I think it came across uh, in the age group 18 to 30 that 20 to 25 percent of the men thought they might be addicted to porn. And what we've seen in terms of anecdotes is men generally do not recognize either the effects of porn or that they may be addicted. So that's a pretty high number. As far as women, you know, we start hearing numbers about, oh, 30% of women use porn, but do they use it as much? Do they use the same type of porn? Are they more attracted to stories? I think that's the general consensus. Definitely women are using, but it's clear that men are attracted to using porn from an early age, and they like to use it for nearly every masturbation session, at least the young guys do. And type of porn there you just mentioned in terms of what women might watch. I mean, another one of the ongoing arguments about pornography is is the you know inherent misogyny in it. So there's this idea that you could have a different type of porn, an ethical porn. I mean, would that be something that would have an effect here as well, do you think? Or, do, or in, in the argument that we're having here, does that just not matter? Well, it matters and it doesn't matter. So first of all, misogynistic porn is no good. And young kids are watching, starting to watch at age 11 and 12, and they're learning about sex. So they're seeing, you know, violent porn, they're seeing fetishes. So the type of porn can matter. In fact, a study from the UK a few months ago discovered that young people ages 16 to 18 were really increasing their engagement in anal sex. And the reason was porn. And interesting enough, neither the males nor the females especially liked it, but they felt compelled to do it. So certainly the type of porn can shape a young person's arousal pattern or what they think is normal. However, we see guys who develop porn-induced erectile dysfunction, and we've had many guys who just watch, quote, vanilla porn, or a few only looked at pictures. They were looking at swimming suit models, but they look at a thousand pictures during a session, just click from one to the next. And so they condition their sexual arousal to being a voyeur and needing to click from picture to picture. Now, that wasn't porn, but they, again, needed that level of novelty in order to stay aroused. 
Let's talk about a typical example of one of those guys then. What have you learned? What's the experience of a a typical porn user who comes to believe themselves adversely affected? Yeah, well, there is no typical. That's the thing that I would really want to uh, emphasize. So we've seen guys who show up and they may use 20 hours a week, 25 hours a week, 40 hours a week, and they don't have any sexual problems. And then we'll see some other young men who will show up at age 22. They've been using for 10 years and they only masturbate. There was one guy only masturbated three times a week to porn for 15 minutes. But the key point was that was his entire sexual experience. So he conditioned his sexual experience for years to sitting and watching porn, and that didn't match real sex. So it really depends on many factors uh, how porn will affect you. Because, you know, one of the most common questions that show up on the forums of guys with the erectile dysfunction is, you know, my friends, they use as much porn as I do, and they don't have any problems at all. Why do I have ED? You know, and that's, uh, there's many factors involved, such as how early you start, how much sex you have compared to how much you masturbate to porn, uh, vulnerabilities of their brain, all sorts of factors. Or it could, of course, be something completely unrelated that's causing it. So, I mean, we're talking here about anecdotal stories, but let's broaden it out and talk about where the science is on this now. Well, so I'm not talking about anecdotal of correlation. I'm talking about causation. So these stories are stories of guys who uh, had no other cause of erectile dysfunction. They did not have performance anxiety because how do you check for performance anxiety? You masturbate without porn. These guys could not maintain an erection without porn. We're talking about guys in their 20s. Then they remove a single variable, which is porn use. And over months, they go through withdrawal symptoms, and then eventually they heal. So this is recovering from porn-induced ED. So that's what I'm really talking about. I'm Hannah Fry. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So how important is age? Because we've talked a few times about about young people. Well, age is very important in terms of conditioning your sexuality because the adolescent brain is unique. It's uniquely vulnerable. It is pruning about 100 billion connections in the brain. Its reward circuit is in high gear, higher dopamine, higher sensitivity to dopamine. And of course, the purpose of adolescence is to wire up your sexual circuit to cues in the environment so that you can successfully reproduce. So if the cues are sitting in front of the screen, these guys wire up. Now, how do we observe the differences? So in recovery from porn-induced erectile dysfunction, the men who started showing up on my wife's forum years ago, they were in their 30s, and they recover in about two months. We're seeing some young guys who are needing up to two years or longer to regain their erectile functioning. And these lengths of recovery have been beginning longer and longer over time. Let's talk about what's happening to their brains then. So neuroplasticity, our brains can be molded. Yeah, so neuroplasticity, you know, uh, the brain that changes itself, the book by Norman Doidge, he first started discussing porn-induced ED back in 2007. And he just used the general model of their sexual template arousal was being changed. But when you look at a few of the new studies that have come out from Cambridge and from Max Planck, we're seeing the same brain changes that occur in other addictions. So what would that be? Well, first you have less nerve connections in the reward center, maybe less 
dopamine being released in response to sexual stimuli. Uh, they also found that when they flashed up porn images, the guys who used more porn, they had less brain activation. So it's sort of a desensitization. At the same time, you have desensitization, which is less arousal to everyday stimuli. These guys have sensitization, which is more arousal to the cues that they're addicted to, like sitting and clicking from video to video. So they have a bigger brain activation. And so what occurs is when you get with a real partner, you have a difference. You've sensitized your brain to everything to do with porn, the shock, the surprise, the novelty, and sitting and watching, and that doesn't match real life. So what occurs with dopamine, which is behind sexual arousal, is dopamine drops when expectations are not met. So the brain expects to be a voyeur and clicking, but real sex doesn't match that. So how does it then affect their patterns of consumption of pornography? So you talk about the idea of novelty, wanting to seek novelty. Does that mean that they're looking for more and more unusual or extreme stuff? Yes, a lot of them are. Uh, one of the major recovery forums called Reddit No Fap, it has about 150,000 members. These are guys who are giving up porn. They actually did a survey of their members, and they found that about 60% had escalated into genres that they felt were extreme and strange. However, more than half of them weren't upset by it. So what occurs is over time, you get bored with uh, lesbian porn, so you need something shocking or surprising or anxiety filling. So you might go to incest porn or rape porn or just something strange for you in order to get a bigger jolt of dopamine and then more arousal so that you can be aroused and have an orgasm. Let's talk about what we can do then if we feel that we're being adversely affected. Let's talk about the, um, the idea of rebooting. You've mentioned it a couple of times, but what's the actual process? Well, the process is pretty simple. It just means giving up porn for a while. But what it also means is giving up what we call artificial sexual stimuli. So the guys will say, okay, I'm not going to watch porn, but I'm going to go to dating sites and spend two hours clicking from picture to picture. That's still feeding your sexual arousal with novelty. So yeah, so the rebooting is just giving up artificial sexual stimuli and trying to rewire your sexual arousal to real people. And they often suggest 90 days, but it really depends. Some of the young guys who have porn-induced sexual dysfunctions, they have to go for many, many months. And really, the point of rebooting is to try to discover how porn has affected you, if it has, and decide whether you want to continue with it. And what other practical solutions are there apart from... The cold turkey, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what they say is go cold turkey. And again, they're going cold turkey on porn. Some continue to masturbate. Some do not. It really depends, I guess, on their goals. But yeah, it's to go cold turkey with porn because if you sort of taper down, you're reactivating those pathways and it just simply causes more cravings and you really don't get the benefits that you would if you just went cold turkey. What's the reaction from the industry to this idea? You know, the porn industry is obviously a huge capitalist enterprise. I mean, how has it reacted to these ideas? Oh, I don't think they care uh, one little bit about me. I mean, they have uh, millions, if not billions, of uh, customers. <laughs> so I don't think they really care. I mean, I've never had any reaction from the porn industry, whatever the porn industry is. 
But what about the, the wider neuroscience? I mean, the, to the ideas of addiction that you talk about in the book, I mean, they must have some reaction to, it's not just yourself that is selling these ideas. Absolutely not. So it really depends who you ask. If you ask actual addiction neuroscientists, they agree with the concept that behavioral addictions exist. In fact, the DSM put in a behavioral addiction category. And the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which is the major addiction organization, put out their new definition in 2011 and said, hey, sexual behavior addictions exist. They involve the same basic mechanisms as do drug addiction. So addiction is one disease. And so the neuroscientists who have spent their career studying and treating addiction, they're in the same camp on that. However, I think what you're asking is, are there opponents? Yes, there are sexologists who... Uh, do surveys and have been study sexuality, they do not like the concept of sex addiction or porn addiction because I think they believe it's sex negative, whatever sex negative means, I don't know. What about yourself? What do you think the industry itself could do in the light of, you know, this idea that, you know, a lot of its consumers might be vulnerable? Well, you know, I don't really think about the industry. I don't even ponder it. What I think about is education because, oh, what's the answer? Education. Well, I don't know if that's the answer, but what's missing in education is education about the brain, education about the adolescent brain and how it's completely different from a child or an adult's brain and how it really rewires itself to a sexual environment and how it's far more seeking of novelty and sexuality and anything thrilling and shocking. And so I think understanding the adolescent brain is one aspect. The second aspect is understanding the vulnerability of the reward circuitry and how it's particularly invulnerable to supernormal stimulus, stimulus we've never evolved with, such as junk food, such as video games, such as internet porn. And that should be part of the education. And so finally, what do you think the future is going to be for this debate? Where do you think we're going? Are things going to get worse? Yes, things are going to get worse. About three or four, about five recent studies on erectile dysfunction in young men found the rates to be about 30%. 30% ED in men under 40. Now, if you go historical and you go back to 1992, when they did a huge cross-section of the U.S. population, they found that erectile dysfunction rates were 5% for men 18 to 60, but I'm talking about guys under 40. And some of them are, some of these studies are men under 25, 30% ED. What variable has changed in the last 15 years? Well, internet porn. So I think things are gonna get worse on all sorts of levels before they get better. I've been talking to Gary Wilson. We've been talking about his book, Your Brain on Porn, Internet Pornography and the Emerging Science of Addiction, which came out in March from Commonwealth Publishing. So, Gary, thank you very much for telling me about it. It's my pleasure. Great talking to you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 